0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the future's markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital-efficient than other automated market-makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you.
1: Hey, Mike, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Just, just finally finally see you in person, if not meet you in person, even though we're all in Hong Kong. Mike, so I was reading up uh, about your background and uh, you've spoken about it before on podcasts and, you know, how obviously at university you came from a kind of digital media background where you kind of initially wanted to be an artist and then you fell into into crypto. I wanted to focus on the crypto side of it, really, and to kind of start off with, you know, what got you interested, uh, I guess, back in 2013 with your um thesis?
2: I started reading about bitcoin i got really interested in trading and mostly into the whole uh, high frequency trading world that that is happening in traditional markets because of books like uh, flash boys and I, I was reading works like that that came out at the time and, and, and i got really drawn into that world but yeah as you already touched upon i wasn't sure if i was kind of like technical technically capable of kind of working in that kind of space because it's obviously a very complicated space and specifically in wall street you have like the Brightest people in the world, like the the you know the the PhDs in math and in uh you know like you literally have like you know rocket engineers or people who can you know like literally build rocket ships and stuff designing these kind of algo. So I was always like, it sounds really interesting. I'm just not sure if I can kind of can do it. But yeah, I was just I was you know really really fascinated by all of that. And then meanwhile, I I learned some stuff about crypto. I read some articles about Bitcoin. I started looking into it a little bit and then I saw, whoa, the exchange landscape in crypto, the trading, crypto trading landscape is kind of like, it's because it's so small at the time, right? Like, so when I get into it, Mt. Gox was the biggest exchange. I had about 60% of the market in terms of uh, volume, market share. And you could see that, you know, it is not as sophisticated. Like, the, the types of strategies people are employing and, you know, what's is not as sophisticated as Wall Street. So, this is a great kind of sandbox where I can go and learn about this stuff. Meanwhile, I was also interested in mining and blockchain. I later became a blockchain engineer. And m- my first foray into like, you know, programming my own stuff was actually not on the trading side. It was actually, I, I tried to create a-, a WebGL mining program that you can run on your computer. This is when people are still mining Bitcoin on their computers. But uh, I didn't get very far there. <laughs> but uh, then I-, I focused on the trading side. So uh, I started building trading bots and stuff. A lot of it open source it was just like a, a learning kind of C- can I learn about this stuff?
1: The start of it. Yeah. So now so at this point you're still an undergrad at university and then kind of trading on the side. Is that correct? Or exactly.
2: And and when I say trading, it's really more like exploring how to trade using software completely open on GitHub. So, so open source, you're sharing it with people, uh, sharing results.
1: And were you actually trading real money here? Like like your own cash?
2: Yes, but not very much, because I was a student. So I, I actually I remember back in the back in the day, because in my country how it works is you can get a student loan from the government at zero interest. You can max that out, but it's it's capped. You you can only borrow certain. But I was thinking, like, should I max it out and like, because I only needed a small portion for living expenses, I should I max it out, which is I think like, ter- was at the time thirteen hundred euros a month, so it's like fifteen thousand euros a year. Could, should I max it out and just buy Bitcoin? I didn't do. it. I was like, that's no, too risky as as a Dutch person. Is, I should have done it, you know, Bitcoin trading uh, a lot less at the time. But yeah, so I know I was trading with my own
1: savings, which you know a few Bitcoin, which at the time was not much. It's interesting you have the, uh, the the trader gene in you because, you know, I'm from a trading background and I did the same thing at university. Yet uh, in, in the UK, you could uh, borrow £9,000 a year from the government on a low interest bearing loan and uh, which you don't have to repay for like, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years after you start working. And I used to trade equities with it. So uh, this is how uh, I guess you can tell who's who's got the trader gene in, in the early days. I've got a question for you, actually, you know, given that you're Dutch and presumably studied all the way through in Holland. When I was kind of at university level, I learned that in Holland, for example, that futures and options were taught to students at school. Is that still the case or was that the case at your time and is this still the case? We do le-
2: learn a lot about it. So in history classes, for example, we do- definitely focus a lot about uh, Dutch history. And a lot of the Dutch history, especially the last 500 years, is very heavy in trading. We used to be a a very big trading empire. So we learn a lot about, you know, where different derivatives come from. So options are originally Dutch as well. The first shares as well are argued. There's some debate about, historical debate about where the first shares were from. But we were taught in school that it was from the uh, VOC, which was the Dutch East Indian.
1: I don't know the English term for this, actually. That's exactly it. East, East India Company. Yeah. Or Dutch India Company. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and these were like so these were very big ships going all the way to India to trade spices and come back with spices they could sell for a lot of money, but not all ships would make it. So you would you would bet basically on a specific ship with a specific captain and a specific crew to be able to go all the way to India and, and come back alive, which was uh, not all of them did it. So you, you basically buy these, so you, you basically invest, which gives them the money to buy the, the resources they need to get the ship ready and you know have enough food and water and stuff on it. So they could go all the way to India, and if they come back, then you could get a portion of the reward. So it was betting slash shares slash equity kind of thing. That's how it started, and that turned out into a very big company where you actually hold, hold equity in the company. Yeah, so we were taught all of that stuff. But in terms of the actual, if you turn like nowadays derivatives and stuff, like I didn't, I didn't get this in high school. I don't know about all the high schools. It's not really part of our national kind of uh, education system. But yeah, I would say like the general, of, uh, the level of math that we get is. is probably like this average level in europe but not really that high compared to maybe us or or asian countries like the level of math they get for example here in hong kong is is a lot higher than what i was uh, exposed to in school but there's a lot of culture around it so if you like i liked reading as a kid and a lot of it you know like a lot of old dutch stories are related to some kind of trading or some kind of
1: yeah yeah no fascinating i know for you know equity options for example the dutch are just huge in it you know I remember being in a cab in Amsterdam somewhere and, the, you know, the guy was basically talking about some call options he had on, on, on Royal Dutch Shell, you know, which is just amazing. Real retail customers, they say. So, Mike, and so can I ask, how, how did you go from sort of like this interesting blockchain and university thing, you know, in 2015, you did your thesis and then you joined ING. What was the driver there? I really liked crypto, but yeah. So as you said, so I did the digital media, and
2: like what you uh, after you study digital media, the kind of the the most logical kind of job they prepare you for is working in uh, at a digital agency or a marketing agency or something like that, where you make you know either websites or, or, or ad campaign stuff like that, which I did for a little bit. But I, yeah, I really didn't like it as much. And, and, and my, my hobby about crypto is really kind of growing out of proportions. Like I was really, there were at the time many, many meetups in Amsterdam about Bitcoin and about crypto. I, I was really, really into it. And at some point I, I noticed that actually I know kind of quite a lot about this stuff. I'm technical enough to understand how blockchains work, consensus algorithms, all that stuff. So yeah, via via, uh, I got in touch with the INT, ING uh, Blockchain Lab which is a part of the innovation lab. So this is uh, within banking, within also like insurance companies, a lot of like financial firms, they have all tried to play around with blockchain, including what we were doing at ING, but it's not, I wasn't like a banker. I was more like, you know, oh, here's one of these guys from the innovation lab. That's go, hopefully going to revolutionize some of our, you know, century old process, business processes that we have. Uh, that we have. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of got lucky that I got introduced to that. And then I basically like stayed in that space for about two years, yeah.
1: Yeah, because 2017 was uh, was uh, actually when I got into crypto, um, and we met with ING back in London because Mark, uh, my co-founder, was the who was also the founder of Coinfloor, was speaking to ING, and ING were basically one of the only banks in the UK that were open open to the possibility of opening a bank account for a crypto exchange. And they were also talking about potentially offering access to their institutional customers for for spot crypto, you know, just Bitcoin at the time. I think. And do you know whether the the Dutch banks have sort of progressed a lot in this front in terms of in their embracing of uh, of crypto, both from a customer and from a kind of a, a exchange perspective?
2: Yeah, the, the way I understand it, I'm pretty far away. Like, I, I really don't spend much time there anymore. But the way I understand it is we have a central bank, which is the the DNB, the Nederlandse Bank. I don't know, the, the DMB is the uh, which is the central bank, which is also a regulator. I mean, it's not really a central bank because the uh, monetary policy is done uh, over in Germany because we have the euro. But they still regulate and they're regulating really, really hard. And they're actually going after a few crypto exchanges at the moment as well. Most recent example being Binance. Binance has to hold most services to Dutch people, <laughs> which is, and they're going after a few other big exchanges as well, as far as I understand. They are really, really worried about crypto. I think, as far as I understand, the banks are really, really worried. So if you look at, like, all the stuff I was doing, we were only doing private blockchain solutions. And, like, you know, we were dealing with compliance people and they were like, it's nice that you're, you're making all these smart contracts for Ethereum, but they can only ever run on a, on a private Ethereum blockchain Even if you kind of work with whitelists and stuff, like we even had compliance people that were worrying about, like, even if you publish a smart contract on the public blockchain and you you whitelist everyone so you know exactly who all the counterparties are, you don't know who's going to mine it. Like, it might be someone from a sanction. They were so worried about that kind of risk. But, um, yeah, it's tricky. With the regulator and everything, it's very,
1: very tricky. Uh, you know, I have an interesting story around 2017, 2018, because I, I actually went to Holland to, uh, obviously in Amsterdam, there are some of the world's largest uh, high-frequency market makers are based. Right? You've got the Optivers, the Flows, the IMCs, the Tibras. and I, I won't tell, I won't specifically say which one, but those in trading will know which one I mean. But basically, the one of the biggest. You know, I, m- I met the head of trading in their trading floor, and they have 200, 300 people on this floor, and. He had a real issue because he knew that individually there were groups of his people, maybe 20 to 30 guys who were privately market making crypto using their laptops and mobile phones. But he could not offer crypto trading within his business because when they spoke to the regulator about it, the regulator said, if we find you guys trading crypto... We will take your license and make you kind of lose out on the, you know, give you, you know, kind of basically reverse any margin privileges and uh, capital privileges that the central bank was giving this firm. And so they were so scared about losing that part for their equities and fixed income business that they kind of passed on crypto, which was a shame because, you know, they were obviously one of the many talented trading firms that were in Amsterdam, you know, so... And this was, I don't think that's changed. I still haven't heard them being in the space. You know, this is like four years later. So you have a few Wall Street firms that are active in crypto, but they really have to be really careful. Like if it's
2: publicly traded, it's extra hard, of course, but compliance wise, they have to run through all kinds of different entities. And the other thing is, so in 2017, there was a period when it was very fruitful, even for, you know, bigger traditional uh, trading houses to kind of get in on crypto, because there was... It was juicy enough for everyone. There was a there was a lot to make with a lot of like conventional strategies, but then after that it got it did get quite. So I also hear no stories, not specifically Dutch firms, but a few of the traditional houses that like invested quite deeply. They were able to get you know compliance would sign off on it. They were able to to get a team to do, do, do some crypto market making, but then the markets got quite tough in 2018. So I also heard you know the story where they did actually go in, but then after that it was too hard. I had to pull out again. The way i see it is like it's true that most of the the traditional wall street guys have been unable to get into crypto which you know is also why i am sitting here and you're talking to me it it, it did provide opportunity for other guys to come in so um there are multiple sides to that but you know it is uh yeah not great for them
1: no absolutely so mike moving on to folks fang folk bank sorry so um once your motivation has started and does the name mean anything
2: yeah, it does actually. So um I'm not old Nordic. But this is old nordish So this is the language they is very, is old. Well, old Norwegian. What they are right now still speak in Iceland, which is very similar to what they speak in Iceland nowadays. And it's actually it comes out of their mythology. So in their mythology, if you're a warrior, a Viking warrior, and you die in battle, then odds are you get picked by Freya to go to one of their heavens, which is called Folkvang. That's so the name of their heaven for the warriors. And then you you get to to feast for eternity. Yeah, so. Uh,
1: maybe as a market maker maybe in this heaven of volkswagen uh, you have to uh, you get maker rebates for taking as well
2: you know so exactly yeah 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 <laughs> no it's uh, yeah so we uh we, we see trading as like uh, especially on the hft side like it's very much it's very aggressive you're co- it's zero sum or a lot of it's zero sum and it's you're competing with a lot of other really smart teams smart guys so it has some kind of you know similarities to 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 battling with them on the battlefield that's and we really wanted a really really unique name because we um uh, we wanted a name that's kind of you know mysterious everyone's like what does this mean how do i pronounce this as well as like i've never heard any name that's kind of similar so we really we're looking for like a super kind of strange kind of obscure name and then you know and then it has this overlap with m- mythology that we're all really into so uh yeah that's why we picked it yeah
1: it's you know it's a great name because look we we struggle to to do anything without the name bit or coin in it right and we've fallen for the trap as coinflex so uh, so that's cool now uh, your money that you trade is it just a uh, prop money or do you have outside cash as well. It's mostly prop money. Like
2: we do actually interface with many lenders, or also so exchanges. Uh, I won't go into names here, but exchanges they sometimes provide lines of credit to very big traders that you know are hired to some volume or, or or liquidity requirements. And there are also other lenders that we deal with. There's some on the D de- on, on the DeFi side as well, DeFi protocols. Uh, we're going to go into VC stuff later, I think, but there's a, there's a new protocol there that we actually just announced earlier today, and we we're investing in them. So we t- we take on loans, but apart from that, it's just prop. Yeah, it's like it's just our own money.
1: Okay, cool. And then, and in terms of strategies that you guys deploy, is it um, are you guys spot? Are you derivatives? Are you both? Um, how do you guys trade? How do you guys make money?
2: Yeah, we we trade most Delta One stuff. We are also active in options. But if you look at like the the vast majority in terms of our allocation, as well as our volume, it's in Delta One. I'd say definitely more heavy emphasis on uh, derivatives, which uh, for us, to be honest, at this stage, like a lot of is perpetual swaps all over. So we're very, very active across multiple exchanges. And then a lot of our strategies, they are like a mix, a hybrid between market making, arbitrage, and, you know, funding ARP slash basis ARP. Yeah, I and mean, we do that like pretty, pretty low latency, which so it's got high frequency. It's very, if you talk, we sometimes talk to like HFT players in either Forex or equities or something. They, they would not call it high frequency on the time scale that we're kind of operating on. But, you know, in crypto, it is considered high frequency. Yeah. And then, you know, top, you know, I'd say right now at the moment, top 100 coins, maybe. Maybe top fifty at the moment, but are kind of just wherever. We're very much props, so we're driven by where we can make money trading. We, we're not getting paid by anyone to trade.
1: As you know, you know in DeFi AMMs have been kind of a huge hit, and on Coinflex now, as you you know we've spoken before, we've created AMMs into futures, which are sort of providing lots of liquidity in the books that they are deployed into, and um, you know the TVL is growing by the day. What do you think this sort of growth of AMM type stat or stat up market making is? How do you think that's going to play out in the future? Is this something that's going to become a bigger proportion of li- kind of liquidity provision, like you in both CFI and DeFi, or do you see kind of maxed out where it is, and and what do you think as a as a market maker and as a taker using pools like this i so i think there's a lot of opportunity here as for the future it is hard to say uh, also
2: because i was introduced to the concept of amm pools quite early on i think banker did ico in 2017 with with, where they introduced or maybe didn't introduce it but that's where i got familiar with the you know the curve and the thing is that I, i brushed it off initially because from a pure trading perspective I think they're not a, an optimal way to trade. So we actually, in a, in the early days when we were trying to figure out like how what kind of algos and what kind of bots, trading bots, should we kind of operate and make, we actually had market making systems that were very that behaved similar to how an AMM kind of trades. And so I kind of brushed it off. And then you know what the, the, the big revelation or like you know why it took off so hard in DeFi is the yield. So a combination of you know like if you if you park some of your capital in this AMM pool. We're going to reward yield, you know, like uh, pro rata, according to everyone who has money in the pool, like that concept and kind of like the dynamics that creates. That's what cut on, and th- there's a lot to do there. And for us as well, like you know, even though I don't think like just a pure AMM pool where there's like limited yield or where there's limited upside, aside from the uh, and like any type of uh, you know extra kind of incentive. It's very hard, especially in kind of crypto assets, but not stable. And with the yield, like a lot of more doors open up. And with Uniswap, you have Uniswap V3 and stuff. Like there, there's like there's a the Pandora's box is kind of open in terms of like there's so much potential. It's very very hard to kind of uh, for me to predict what will happen there because I guess a lot of it is driven by how do people react to yield and how do people react to kind of different incentives, kind of magnet megani- mechanisms. As well as how can kind of, you know, because you have the thing with uh, which is called the impermanent loss, right, with with AMM pools, whereas especially if an AMM pool is kind of like, you know, a stable coin and then a crypto asset, which very likely is going to either go down a lot or up a lot, you're going to be in a bad bad spot as the as the MM or you, you might potentially be depending on, you know, a lot of things like the incentives and like other things.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, one of the interesting things about putting uh, that we found on CoinFlex's AMMs by putting it into futures order books, the um, because the number of trades per second is huge, the yields are generally much, much higher than Uniswap V3 without any incentive. So so that's what's giving us her early promise and feedback that this is hugely scalable. But the point you're making about impermanent loss is a very good one because we have complete and utter confusion from users in sense of, because half of them look at it in coin terms, half of them look at it in dollar terms, and so what's impermanent loss for one is not impermanent loss for the other. And so in our future iterations on our UX and UI, you know, we're basically having to tweak it out. I think it comes out next week, where you can start getting displayed in your base currency because, because everyone's got a different base currency. And I don't even mean within coins versus dollars. I mean within the coin segment, people want to have a look at everything in BTC terms or ETH terms or you know, BCH terms, because the CoinFlex is sort of repo. In the background, you can be an AMM with any coin in any other order book. And so you could put BCH down and be an ETH market maker. So in your back of your mind, you're still accounting and PLing BCH, even though you're market making an ETH dollar pair. It's actually fascinating to learn for me because I come from, you know, like from a trading, pure trading background, non crypto initially. So for me, I was always very dollar based, right? How was your day? Well, I made some X dollars or I lost Y dollars. You know, it was never in BTC terms, I'm up. You know, so even I'm getting used to um, thinking in a different unit of account, which is uh, which is fascinating.
2: That's a good step in a good direction too, in order to explain people what's happening and, and what the risks are. But even then, right, like you know, if the price trends, like you're still going to get yield, right? Like uh, uh, like there, there 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 are advantages. And as you're saying as well, like the flow can easily offset so the the fees that you make on the trading can easily offset any type of loss there. But but if it turns out that the thing trends either up or down a lot. There, 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 there are still some it's, it's So We are also active in the, uh, the option space where, where we see a lot of that those kind of payoff scenarios. I think we're at the early days. And I think there will be, I, I'm pretty sure you guys are also, you know, uh, as you're saying, so the base currency is, is, is uh, an update you guys are going to push. There probably will be more updates. Uh, we're still kind of seeing Uniswap did a, did, did a big you know, architecture design with Uniswap V3. They came out with that like many months ago. We're still kind of seeing the market kind of react to that on a big scale. I'm not super into the, the you know, maybe it's already happening and I haven't seen it. It's quite possible. But I, I think we're early days and there, there are kind of ways to deal with a lot of the risk as well. So I, I
1: think odds are It's here to stay. It's hard for me to predict, so to say. No, no worries. So just a question, obviously, AMMs, you know, for people who trade options, they'll immediately recognize AMM as a short option, short vol product. How do you guys engage with options? Do you trade options to like hedge your your Delta One portfolio? Are you an options market maker or, or just speculative directional? What, what, what kind of uh, use do you have for them?
2: Yeah, as I said, a lot of the core trading we do is just delta one between perps. But we are growing and we are trying to, to trade more things. So we're building out an option arm now within our firm. We want to do market making. I, I think we're not currently live market making, but we are We're exploring that. We're going to run that definitely uh, very soon. But right now we do. Uh, we, we trade the curve. We, we trade different. There is some directionality there. And then mainly ETH Bitcoin. Uh, so so Deribit is a very big uh, liquid relative in crypto uh, option venue Uh, we're very active there we take on some you know sometimes we do some some we take on some some otc or we trade them otc and then we you know like hedge them out stuff like that but there's definitely some directionality there it's quite different so far you have to what we found so far with options is you have to take a different approach to how we approach perps the flow is very different you know the types of spreads that you're seeing and you know like the and how the curve uh, is drawn out is very different so there's a different way to trade it
1: yeah, also very, you know, much, obviously much less liquid than, than perps. So you have to, you, you know, at least when I was trading options, the way I viewed every trade was that, you know, am I pricing and structuring this trade where I can, I'm happy to warehouse it for a few days at a time, rather than a few minutes at a time, you know, with, with perps. So exactly. It's a different mindset. Yeah. Good. And finally, uh, Mike, just to finish off now, I also understand that you guys, as a lot of other market makers are, you know, have a kind of a VC arm or a tokens token arm. Why is this new trend for market makers to be VCs? Because obviously, when I was trading, it was like there was just complete different industries. And now they're kind of merging together. Is there kind of a natural advantage you think you see being a HFT or MM to, to gives you kind of a, a different thought process on, on being a VC? definitely definitely so uh you see many many crypto projects coming
2: out and a lot of them are related to trading which is something that market makers have a very uh, they have a very deep understanding of market structure products uh, different incentive schemes and such so it, it's a natural fit in terms of like they would market makers generally i'm not just talking about us but like uh, other market makers have VC, vc arms as well they have a deep understanding and then on top of that once a trading project goes live a lot of them are trading protocols where they they're going to be uh, some need for liquidity this is definitely like you know why you know the, uh, the whole amm kind of boom that we saw was so interesting because it allowed everyone to become a market maker you don't need professional market makers anymore right because everyone can become an lp and put your money in the pool but you are seeing more and more protocols coming out where you know you still need some professional traders to either pull the, pre- the price back in line or provide you know a little bit more complicated liquidity or liquidity that requires more thinking such as Uniswap v3 or just order book based You see some blockchains blockchains that have the facility or they have the the throughput to enable order book-based trading protocols or or, or platforms. You know, as soon as you have that, you're going to need market makers. So engaging for market makers from day one, whereas the platform is not ready yet, but we're kind of working on it at very early stage. We're going to need some advice. Like market makers are a very, very natural fit there. Because once these platforms go live, the market makers are able to kind of, you know, Provide the liquidity needed or provide the, you know, the run the arbitrage against the pool or something needed to kind of keep it keep it alive. So these two things, right? The advice, because market makers understand market so well, in combined with one once it goes live, they can actually offer the liquidity. It's just it's a it's a very natural
1: kind of VC fit. That now that makes way more sense. So essentially, looking at projects that that you guys are, to get involved in are ones that you would use yourself, like a like you said earlier in the in the, in the uh, podcast, like a borrow uh, a borrow lend platform that you're talking about that announces soon, and and other projects that are around sort of I guess DeFi swaps and, and exchanges. So that is that makes way more sense to me now than now that you it that way. So thank you for that. Yeah, that's
2: our focus. Uh, We we do know a few firms and they're going, uh, they're taking the shotgun approach where they they invest in many, they invest in everything they can for us. And what we see most of our direct competitors doing, they they really focus on the trading, trading kind of stuff. Like you have exchanges coming out with DeFi related projects as well. You know, exchanges have very close relationship with market makers. So it's, it's a natural fit there in, in in many cases so we we only if you see uh, like yeah i think i don't think we've we've invested in anything that's not some kind of trading application that we're not going to use so nft is something like i think it's very fascinating i just i don't understand it i'm not getting into it yeah.
1: well that makes two of us so far so but uh, but i feel old and i need to start learning this stuff so that's my next that's my holiday job learning about nfts so mike thank you very very much for your time for joining crypto unstacked and really really nice to speak to you in person finally or well at least on on, on video at least the nearest we get these days so
2: yeah thanks too yeah really enjoyed it